and welcome to a new episode of A Real Deals Podcast. I'm reporter Jennifer Forrest and on this podcast we're going to be focusing on the SFDR regulation which came into force in March this year. Joining me I have two guests. Firstly Eve Ellis, partner at Ropes and Gray and also Danny Williams, senior principal consultant and ESG advisory team member at ACA Group. I'm hoping to talk to both of these guests in this episode to talk about the SFDR regulation, how they found it over the last few months and what they would like to see changed. Um, firstly, hi guys, welcome to the podcast. I was wondering if maybe Eve, you could start off by talking me through what you've kind of found in changing of reporting in the last few months since SFDR came into force. Sure, and thanks. I mean, I, look, I think the extent to which SFDR impacts managers really depends on the classification of their particular fund product and also whether they're an EU manager or a non-EU manager. For those of our sort of manager clients who have products that are Article 6 products, so in that lowest level, sort of a a conventional product, the reporting requirements, there aren't any sort of ongoing reporting requirements. So in that respect, actually, I think SFDR hasn't been a huge shift. There was obviously quite a lot that managers did in terms of the prior implementation, working out what classification their products would have. But I think in that respect, the the initial reporting hasn't been too significant. And for those managers that are able either to just apply the principal adverse impact disclosures, again, the reporting has sort of not really been a huge issue Um, for managers. I think it's those managers that are in the Article 8 or 9 or those that have decided to comply with the principal adverse impact disclosures where this is going to be something that is going to become more of an issue. But I think at this stage, because the reporting isn't effective, it probably hasn't been a huge change in the last few months. Um, I think what um, the March deadline did was obviously mean that managers needed to focus on the initial SFDR implementation. And I think over the next 12 months, that's when we'll see more ramping up and more focus on the ongoing reporting requirements. For sure. Um, Danny, did you have anything to add? No, I think just literally to mirror kind of, um, you know, what Eve said, we're seeing kind of the same things with both kind of our client base and, you know, in the wider market where, you know, kind of under level one, there wasn't actually too too many kind of reporting requirements to start ramping up on for a majority of our base. Um, what we also saw too, I think, is with SFDR, it, it kind of, especially in terms of level one, snuck up. Um, I think on uh, on a lot of people, um, you know, I know there was some bit of a hesitation in the UK as far as managers over here waiting to see if it was going to be applicable. Um, obviously, it was not onshored. Um, so kind of good news in that respect for those firms. Um, but we've also seen actually quite a few firms that because of kind of the lateness of getting involved in, you know, seeing how it was going to comply um, and maybe, you know, needing to not comply at the manager level, but having products in scope. Um, a lot of people seem to go to the direction of actually being kind of Article 6 initially. Um, and we've had quite a few conversations and heard, you know, kind of in the wider market of those firms actually looking at what their reporting requirements are going to be should they transition to 8 or 9. So I think although, you know, maybe there's a little bit of kind of trial and error kind of going on in the background to see, you know, in terms of reporting requirements, if they can meet that kind of next level threshold um, in terms of actually doing the reporting as of yet. Yeah, and Danny, actually, I I would agree with that. I think that a lot of clients are within the Article 6 classification. But again, I think over the next year or so, you might see sort of clients, once the reporting becomes a little clearer as to what they've got to do, 
sort of decide whether or not actually their fund might um, sort of move to sort of Article 8 and then they'll sort of begin to comply with that respect, but sort of starting off with Article 6 because they're comfortable that at this point in time they can they they can fit within that classification. So I think we're sort of seeing similar things as well. That's really interesting. Um, I was wondering if Danny, you could talk us through, um, you kind of said how interesting it was as to whether or not the UK would pick up SFDR with it being an EU regulation. Um, I was wondering if you could talk us through the kind of biggest challenges from your GP client's perspective that have kind of arisen since the regulation has come into force? Yeah, I think one of, it's been kind of twofold. And actually one is a little bit, I would say most slightly unrelated to, to SFDR, but I'll start with the first. And I think the first one has been the pain point for, for the market as a whole is that there's still a lot of kind of questions around the regulation. Um, most significantly, the questions that were sent by ESA to ESMA um, to kind of opine on were, were, are fairly significant, you know, in determining whether or not kind of firms need to comply with SFDR or how to comply with SFDR. Um, so I think still waiting on those at this point um, in the game when, you know, firms need to try and make decisions if they are going to go from a six to an eight um, and start ramping up their programs, you know, that that is causing, I think, still a, a pain point in terms of um, whether or not they need to comply and to what extent. Um, what's actually been a little bit interesting um, that we're seeing kind of more and more of is the, the impact that just having SFDR exist has had on managers outside the scope of SFDR. Um, we're seeing an increasing number of um, managers actually be requested by either their investors or if they're a sub-manager um, of a larger kind of institution being requested to look to comply with SFDR although they may completely be kind of out of scope or appear to be completely out of scope for SFDR. Um, so it's quite significant that, you know, we're getting this a lot, you know, in terms of not just in the UK, where there's a bit of a foundation in terms of, you know, prior to Brexit, we were all kind of harmonized under this one EU umbrella. But, you know, now we're getting US managers, we're hearing from Aus managers, we're hearing from, you know, managers in Asia saying that their investors are telling them to have some level of compliance with SFDR and actually at Article 8 and 9. And that's quite significant in the fact that it doesn't comply to them. And then how do you kind of transpose a regulatory regime that's applicable in one area to a manager that has absolutely no experience in that area? Um, and again, there's, you know, there's implications of SFDR that tie to MIFID, AIFMD and USITS rules. You know, how does that kind of work itself out? Um, I think that's actually quite significant because, you know, both sides don't know, really know what to tell each other in that, you know, you've got in, investors and kind of European managers asking the question and telling, you know, other institutions to go do this, but, you know, there's not that kind of foundation or understanding or the regulatory framework um, to go do it. So I, I think that is actually causing um, a bit of a pain point that we're seeing and a bit of kind of confusion as to what that needs to look like. Mm. So I think those two we're, we're seeing the most kind of questions around. I would, I mean, Danny, I would definitely agree. I think SFDR is some, it's, it's a really interesting piece of regulation because it has got so much focus from investors um, because of the subject matter, because ESG is such a key and central issue for investors and it has been for but for many years now. And we're, we're seeing something similar where EU investors are 
putting requests on managers that are not subject themselves to SFDR and saying, we want you to comply with SFDR. And I think that it'll be really interesting to see how that evolves over time. And also, Danny, similar to your point, that will investors actually say, look, we only want to invest in Article 8 or Article 9 products, and therefore SFDR sort of almost becomes a marketing and branding sort of tool that managers are using to be able to attract investors or investors won't be investing in conventional products. Um, yeah, I don't think that's going to happen immediately, but it will be interesting to see how that develops over the next sort of 12 to 18 months. For sure. I think it's definitely really interesting to see how it could become a marketing tool and what that kind of means for smaller firms as well, whether they'll suffer because the kind of bigger firms are using it more to their advantage. Um, my next question was actually going to be on investors, Eve. Um, I was wondering if you could kind of talk us through how you kind of not predict, but expect kind of investors to react, let's say, in the next 12 months to the outcomes of SFDR reporting. Mm. I mean, look, I, I think as we've we've probably sort of touched on that, that a little bit already, but I do think that investors are looking probably at managers to do more in relation to ESG reporting. But what's interesting is I think investors were putting those requirements on managers already prior to SFDR coming into play. Um, and so that has been very much front and center and sort of part of particularly sort of the larger institutional investors and particularly from a European perspective, something that they have been requesting of managers for some time now. So I think that's going to continue and it's just going to be how much they focus their reporting requirements on what's in SFTR or whether they just stick to sort of other requirements that they may be existing subject to already. So I, I think it will be interesting to see how things pan out over the next 12 to 18 months from investors and what they want to see from an investor reporting perspective. And to your point in terms of you know data and access, I think that is one of the key issues with SFTR is as well as how how do managers actually get the data to be able to do the reporting that's set out you know, in the draft um, standards and the level two at the moment? And that, again, I think is going to be something that's interesting. And it depends very much on asset class. Like if you're a private equity manager taking control positions, it may be easier to get that data compared to if you're a credit fund manager. So we're also going to sort of see how that evolves over time. And I think to sort of one of the points that Danny mentioned, one of the biggest issues with SFDR is there is still so much uncertainty. And that I think is what people are, are hugely grappling with at the moment in terms of both the reporting, how they classify their products, when something becomes six to eight from eight to nine, and all those things I think are hopefully going to, you know, with future regulatory guidance and as the market evolves, hopefully those things will become clearer as, as time goes on. Oh yeah, I think for sure, if anything, even before the regulation was brought out, it was quite clear that kind of confusion and uncertainty were quite big themes for many GPs and other firms kind of surrounding the SFDR regulation. Um, I would then ask you both, we understand this level two um, will be coming out early next year, which will build upon the so-called level one element of SFDR, where the EU Commission will take on kind of feedback and learnings from this year to make the SFDR better. Um, I wonder if you could both kind of talk me through anything that you or your clients would like to see changed with SFDR. And if you if you could pitch anything to get changed, what would it be and why? I'll, I'll jump in. Um, I, I think actually the first thing, and it doesn't actually have to do with level two, it's literally the clarity that of the questions that were already asked under level one. 
Um, again, it's very difficult for managers to start thinking about reporting under level two if they don't know they have to, you know, and to what extent. Um, so providing that clarity and the, that understanding as to even the difference between an Article 6 and an Article 8 product, you know, I mean, although that there's the investor pressure to kind of um, that we're seeing for a lot of firms to start going Article 8 or Article 9, as you know, we, we've just kind of spoke through, you know, for those firms that do still have that option as to whether to be, you know, a 6 or an 8, um, it's vital for them to kind of have that clarity. Um, there's questions I know around, you know, whether firms that are marketing into Europe, you know, is it going to apply just to the product or also at the manager level as well? You know, all of those little things are, are, are you know, vital in understanding kind of more of what to do under level two. I think in terms of it, and Eve touched on this um, already, the kind of other thing that kind of ties in tightly with that is um, the quality and the reporting of the data. Um, so although, you know, not something that necessarily needs to change directly in the regulation, um, but something that, you know, the quality definitely needs to be there in order to assist firms in reporting um, under level two. Um, so whether that is, you know, either, and we're seeing a bit of a ramp up with data providers, you know, at least, you know, saying that they're, they're getting more and more um, kind of availability of data and able to report kind of more under principal adverse impacts and other criteria. Um, whether or not it's going to be there come Gen 1, um, again, it's going to be kind of a interesting to see, I guess, so to speak. And then what happens if it doesn't? You know, this is going to impact everyone across the board. If the data is not available for, you know, one firm across these platforms, then it probably is not available for others out there. And then, you know, what's the end result? Um, so I think maybe potentially a little bit of leeway. Um, in terms of from a regulatory standpoint, um, I don't think we'll actually, um, the cynic in me saying we won't, we won't get a pushback kind of any further, um, you know, for level two in reporting, but, you know, these are things that, that are going to come up, um, you know, that we can kind of foresee potentially occurring. So I'd say that those, those two are, are kind of the key, key pain points. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would agree, like having more clarity across the board I think will be really helpful for managers. Um, I think in terms of the reporting, um, I completely agree, having more leeway and discretion for managers to decide how they report, I think is really important because unfortunately the regulation can never be designed with all the different fund types and all the different strategies um, in mind. So giving, invest giving managers the discretion um, and ultimately a lot of this, particularly in the alternatives, space has sort of already been dealt with over the years as between investors and managers because they negotiate their fund documentation investors are sophisticated they they have sort of the requirements for example around esg and those have been sort of negotiated with investors having this overlay of sort of prescriptive requirements that may not work for a particular fund or a strategy i think becomes really challenging and probably adds more Sort of administrative burden than necessarily having the right impact from an ESG perspective. I mean, SFTR certainly has been helpful in terms of sort of creating a, a baseline where all managers now need to at least integrate and consider ESG. But I think we've got to be careful that actually, you know, with the reporting being so prescriptive and difficult to apply across potentially different asset classes and having the data actually available, I think is going to make it very challenging um, for, for people to manage um, in practice. The other area I think that is challenging for managers is the interaction between SFDR and the taxonomy regulation. And I think at the moment that is really unclear. 
Um, and again, that's something I think is going to evolve. But I think for those managers that are in that space where their product overlays both, that is even more challenging. And at the moment, when you look at the different sort of drafts that are out there, it is, it's very difficult to sort of work out what applies and how it works in practice. So that's an area I think there does need to be significant more clarity as well. That's really interesting, everything that you both said. I think it'll be really interesting to kind of see if that changes and yeah, and, and how, how it would and the kind of usefulness that that would bring. Um, I think that's a really nice note to finish on. Um, thank you both for joining me on this podcast and talking me through kind of SFDR and how it is now. It's been really interesting to discuss it.